Now let's look at the initial setting of the Joseph saga. And what we're going to see is, after tending the family flock with some of his older brothers, Joseph returns home and receives reward from his dad, but reproach from the brothers. And i got to warn you, you think the Brady Bunch were a dysfunctional family? This family has got to be one of the worst, most perverse, bizarre, uh, slimy, downright, sketchy, uh, extended uh, dysfunctional families in all of history. Uh, for one reason, we got too many wives. You know, we can, you can only handle one, and I'm not even that good on that deal. You know, uh, but he's got four wives. Jacob does. This is Joseph's dad. You got twelve sons. Joseph is number eleven. Benjamin's the baby. You got only one daughter, and it, it gets really, really slimy. And you read about these people, you wouldn't want them. To Teach the toddler's class, you wouldn't want to teach any class in any church in the world. Uh, you're looking at a case study of the joys of polygamy. Now watch this. You guys need to be good Bible readers. In certain cases in the Old Testament, some of these people that turn out to be major pl- players have multiple wives. New Testament, you don't see that. Uh, so was that okay in the Old Testament? Not okay in the New Testament? It was never okay. It was stupid. It's a bad idea. It leads to debauchery. It leads to all kinds of problems. Uh, the fact that Jacob had four wives is describing what he did as a bad idea. It's not prescribing it as something we ought to aspire to. In uh, the very first didactic portion, the very first direct teaching about marriage in the Bible, where do you find it? Genesis 2, second chapter of the book, for this reason, because God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, you know, and and uh, a husband shall cleave to his wife. That means enter into a covenant. Uh, she'll leave his father and mother, I should say, first. You've got to be an adult. Cleave to his wife, enter into a covenant. That's the wedding ceremony uh, that you and Jason did a few years ago, right? And then the, then the two shall become one flesh. So that's the pattern, one man, one woman. Jacob is a bad example of somebody who, who did something different. And you see all kinds of problems. Let me list some of them. Lies, deceit, anger management problems, sexual immorality, murder, envy, slander, resentment, hatred. And those are the good qualities of these people. I mean, it's rough stuff. But for sure, the Bible does not cover over the sins of its major characters. But there's one Bible character, and I like that distinction, James. Uh, There's one person in the Bible that doesn't have any sin. And when I guess who that is, he stands uh, in marked contrast from everybody else in the world. Now let's look at these verses. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, two of the four. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to his father. This is a, a nice graphic of the four wives, right? And so, Joseph, I think all the brothers are helping with this uh, project, but Joseph is working with the uh, less favored wives and their kids, Gad, Asher, Dan, and Naphtali. And, but he, and I, I, I take it based on other dynamics, that this is probably the first time he's been permitted to kind of work with a whole group of brothers apart from dad, taking care of the family flock. And when he comes back home from this uh, work trip, uh, he has to say, they're not doing a very good job, Dad. Um, 
Some people see Joseph as kind of a little bit arrogant and a little bit full of himself in this chapter, and that's not impossible. I personally just see him as naive. I think he's just naive. And he probably told them he didn't think they were doing that good of a job uh, on the job. And then when he got home, Dad said, hey, how how things go? Well, i got to tell you, you know, they weren't taking care of the sheep right. They didn't do this, didn't do that. Uh, i got a feeling he's just naive and kind of very transparent uh, to an extreme. And when he offers to tell him about his dreams, I don't think he's trying to show off. Now, you can argue that he is an arrogant little kid, a uh, young guy, and his brothers are much older. That's possible. We'll find out in heaven. But uh, anyway, he's hanging with the sons of the lesser wives, working with all of them, comes home from this project, um, and not good. Look at verse 3. Now, Israel. Israel is a name for Jacob in these contexts. One guy with two different names. Like my name is Brad, but my nickname when I was little was Scooter. I don't know why, but my sister still called me Scooter. Um, I think, didn't you hear about that, Julie, at one point? I think you, have you called me Scooter before because you heard my sister's comment out? Yeah. Judy was, uh, Judy, uh, Julie knows, knows more about me than anybody else should, so I gotta be really nice around her because she let go of all my secrets. Now Israel, that's Joseph's dad, also known as Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his sons. Is that descriptive or is that prescriptive? You know, it's an amazing thing because uh, we only have two sons, but I've often said as a dumb man with a testosterone-damaged brain, I didn't, I didn't really viscerally feel love on the level that I did when I first saw my, my son born in, in, as a young boy. And, and when I see Wrigley, he reminds me a lot of Jamie at that age. So uh, when we get pregnant the second time, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, how can I, how can I love the next one as much as I love this J- Jamie, you know? And you know what? You just can. It's weird, but, but it happens. And, uh, t- to the extent that, uh, I-, I think I constantly tried to avoid showing favoritism. Now, the crazy thing is, Jamie's got about 50 cent, 50% of his personality is a lot like mine, so I find it easy to love. But, the flip side is Jonathan's personality, about 50% of it is a lot like mine. So I can really relate to him uh, very intimately at certain levels. In other, other areas, I have no idea where they're coming from. But, I mean, Jamie was more the athlete, and to this day, you know, he doesn't sit around. Some people like Danny Pollock are just building stuff, fixing stuff. The Lloyd Davis is like that. They can't. Uh, Stan doesn't sit around. He works on his farm. Basically, he's got a mini farm out there. He's always working. But uh, Jamie doesn't sit around. I like to watch basketball games, football games, you know, with a bag of Cheetos in one hand and a Coke Zero in the other. I'm perfectly happy to watch really good athletes do the thing. Jamie doesn't want to watch anybody do anything. He wants to play a game. If he's not playing a game, he's not happy. But you got to keep score. If you're not keeping score, he's not happy. I'd like to practice more and keep score because I don't lose so much, you know. got to play a game. Got to keep score. It has to involve a ball. It can be baseball, big golf. It can be anything. It's got to have a ball in it. And he needs all that to be happy, Jack. And the real kicker is he's got to be winning. If any of those things are not working, he's not happy, you know. So, you know, I see that. And I'm kind of like that, too. I used to be. And so I really like that. Jonathan didn't want to play baseball. He, he, went, he played uh, t-ball because we got snow cones or, or refreshments at the end. He was there for the refreshments, you know. And uh, But 
He loves to read. He loves to uh, like come up with diagrams. He's a graphic designer. I like diagrams. So I love that. So, you know, both of, both my boys had characteristics that would have made it be easy for me to favor one or the other, but by God's grace, they had enough difference that it really wasn't that much of a temptation. But I, to my extent, I always wanted to try to avoid any hint of favoritism as a father. But, you know, Jacob doesn't get that. It's obvious he loves Joseph the best. And the reasons the commentaries say is because he was the first son of his of Jacob's favorite wife. Guess guess who Jacob's favorite wife was? Rachel. And there's a long story behind that, but he fell in love with her before he met these other chicks, you know. And there's various reasons for these things. But yeah, Joseph's the first son, and so that's probably one of the reasons. And there's a lot to like in Joseph. But again, this is describing it. It's not saying it's okay to favor your kids. That's, that's a stupid idea. It's very psychologically, I think, spiritually harmful to them. But the reality is, Jacob, also here called Israel, loved Joseph more than all his other sons because he was the son of his old age and the first son of his favorite wife. And so he made him a varied colored tunic, not V-E-R-Y, but V-A-R-I in the New American Standard, very colored tunic. Now, you and I know that, if you're over 30, as the coat of many colors, because that's what the King James says. His brother saw that their father loved him, Joseph, more than them, and so they hated him and could not speak to him, even on friendly terms. They weren't on speaking terms. That's a bad way to live. There's always somebody doing something. Don't become a pastor. There's always somebody doing something weird. Somebody's always mad about something. Somebody's usually mad at me about something. You've got to be very giving and very forgiving in this business. But that's kind of the Christian life, isn't it? Now, talking about the very colored coat, um, that's a pretty cool graphic uh, for a, uh, a play you probably have heard of. It was on Broadway for a while. I was telling James, several years ago, they did it in Wichita Falls. They've got a really nice renovated theater in downtown Wichita Falls. And one Saturday afternoon, we went down there and saw it. I thought they did a wonderful job. And they do a really nice that play. It does a nice job of summarizing Genesis 37 through 50. But let's talk about this uh, very colored coat. Look at different translations. Uh, as I said, the New American Standard calls it a very colored, um, what did it say, if I can find my translation here. Very colored tunic, right? That's what the New American Standard says. King James says, coat of many colors. The NIV, which according to James is the never incorrect version, says richly ornamented, ornamented, can't even say the word, richly ornamented robe. And did a little research, and I I didn't really know this, I don't think, but uh, what we've got here is a robe that reaches to the wrists and to the ankles. And it would have had multiple colors. I I, I think I've called it kind of a many-colored letter jacket kind of thing. But the significance of this was you can't work in the fields or with the flock with that much coverage on your arms and your legs because in the ancient Near East, people who are working with cattle or working in the fields would wear a sleeveless tunic, the sleeves just get in the way, that extended just to the knees to give them plenty of freedom to move and maneuver. So the significance of the robe was Jacob, who's generally a very passive parent, was saying actively, Joseph is my favorite, and he's the chief, and you guys is the Indians. He's the coach, 
You guys are the players. He's not supposed to do the kind of hard, physical, manual labor you guys do. He'll just kind of supervise on the fringes. So as long as he's wearing that, it'd be like uh, Swindoll in his commentary says, uh, for Joseph to wear this to go out and help the brothers in the field would be like a welder today wearing a long, full-length male mink coat to work. It just is not practical. It's not going to work. You can't do it. This is a sign he's daddy's favorite, and he's not supposed to do any hard work. Let's keep his fingers nice and soft kind of thing. Now, can I give you a really corny cartoon alert? This is uh, this is not a photograph. It's an artist's representation of Joseph looking at the coat. This is what he's thinking, and then the caption says, Being colorblind, Joseph couldn't see the big deal about the new coat. Okay, let's look at Joseph's dreams. <laughs> we got two dreams. Look at verse 5. Then, that doesn't mean write that next five minutes, but several weeks, a couple months later, just an indefinite period of time, but presumably best in the context, not 18 years later. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. They already won't speak to him kindly. And he said to them, please listen to this dream. Now, again, a lot of people, a lot of preachers, a lot better than me, think that Joseph's just wet behind the ears. He's trying to irritate his brothers or show off, or he's kind of arrogant. That's not impossible. I just think he's naive. I think he realizes this is a message from God, and they would want to know that. Um, When Jonathan was, like, barely able to talk and walk, he thought it was really weird that he didn't like chicken, like drumsticks, but he liked chicken McNuggets. And I don't like cheese, but I like Cheetos. He just thought that was weird. It blew his categories. So he would literally, we'd be in Target or Walmart or grocery store, kind of walking with him, and he would walk up to little old ladies and kind of pull on their skirt, and they'd look down at him and say, yes, what do you want? He said, hey, guess what? I like, I don't like chicken, but I like chicken McNuggets, and my dad doesn't like cheese, but he likes Cheetos. <laughs> he just thought that was something everybody would want to know. Um, it is kind of a crazy thing. It's hard. If that was in the Bible, they say it's impossible. But it actually happened. But um, yeah, to me, I think that's kind of Joseph's mindset. God's given me this information. Obviously, going to want to know it. Kind of like Martin Luther, fifteen seventeen. He starts the Reformation, having been tasked by the Roman Catholic Church to teach a class on Romans, rather than using the Latin Vulgate, which was the preferred text. He translated Romans from the original. And when he got to chapters 3, 4, and 5, he said, hey, what we've been saying isn't right. Salvation is not based on faith and works. It's based on faith alone, totally on Jesus, his one-time sacrifice on the cross. Wait till I tell everybody. Wait till I tell the bishop. He's going to be so happy. And guess what? Nobody was happy. They didn't want to know. So same kind of thing here. In my opinion, Joseph is saying this with a naive. They're not talking to him. They don't have his best interest at heart. But he doesn't pick up on that. He's only 17, right? So he's still wet behind the ears. And a dream said, hey, brother, hey, bros, listen to this. I had a dream. And behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. Kind of looked like that, right? And lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect. And behold, yours gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Do you want to know that, right? Isn't that great? Then his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you out of your mind? That's not going to happen. 
Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more. He's digging himself a hole here for his dreams and his words. Now he had still another dream. And he related it to his brothers. A couple of days later, a couple of weeks later. Lo, I've had still another dream. And you can't, you're not going to believe this one. It's really good. Behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars. He has 10 older brothers who are the problem. One younger brother, not so much so, but he's talking about all his brothers. Uh, behold, the sun, the moon, that's mom and dad, or at least his mother's dad now, but uh, Leah would be his kind of primary mother. The sun and the moon, son's dad, moon's primary mother. They've got, he's got three others now, three total. And 11 stars were bowing down to me. He related to his father too, as well as to his brothers, and his father even, Jacob, and he favors Joseph, says, what is this dream you've had? Are you making this up? You, are we going to bow down to you, even me and your mother? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now look at that, Blanche. I've always, when I see that Jacob, who doesn't like the import of the dream, that he's going to have to bow down to his son at some point, kept the saying in mind. That sound familiar? You know, after the, uh, in, uh, in uh, the birth of Christ, after the shepherds show up and say, hey, you're not going to believe that we had angels saying, you're the, your baby's the Messiah here. It said, everybody's wondering in the town, but it says Mary was pondering, thinking through these things, kind of treasuring, saying, wow, yeah, this lines up. This is, she knew that already, but it's just something she really treasured and enjoyed. So way in the back of Jacob's mind, even during the dark days for 13 years when he thought his son was dead, as it turns out, He's saying, hey, maybe there's, maybe there's something more to the story. Okay. Now let's go to the heart of the issue. Look at 12 through 36. Joseph sold by his hateful brothers into slavery in Egypt, but is protected by the providence of God. Look at, oh, and by the way, before I go there, let me say this. Uh, let me ask you some questions. Number one, when the brothers get mad about the content of those two dreams, who are they really mad at? Who's given the dream? The dreams are coming from God. So they're not really mad at, they're mad at him, but they're really in opposition to God, whether they understand it or not. Uh, when Christians get mad about some of the content of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, first or second Peter, or Genesis, or they don't want to listen to it, who are they really getting upset at? The preacher? They're really getting upset at the author, right? That's why it's so sad. When unbelievers don't like to hear John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. And they're going to get mad at you when you say that. How dare you say that? You're a bigot. How about all the Hindus in the world? Who are they really opposing on that? Yeah, so that's the thing here. And um, I told James, and I, I graduated from seminary in 1981, right after the earth's crust hardened in Dallas Seminary. Uh, and there's a lot, of, a lot of really good commentaries on Genesis. I mean, it's a book that's fascinating. Everybody likes to write on it. It's wonderful. But I can remember all of my teachers, including my Hebrew teachers, often reference this little commentary. It's Genesis by Derek Kidner. Just remember kid, like a, like a baby goat in him. Maybe that won't help, but uh, just ask me. His, na- his name is Derek Kidner. And I've reacquainted myself with his commentary. It's really, really good. And one thing he says about the dreams, he says, the account of the dreams here coming at the outset, at the very beginning of 14 chapters about Joseph. The account of the dreams coming at the outset makes God, not Joseph, the hero of this story. It's not just a tale about human success, 
but a divine sovereignty. God is going to make all this happen, even though the brothers are about to do everything humanly possible to make those dreams being fulfilled impossible. And we've got Joseph sold up the river Nile by his hateful brothers, but protected by the sovereign providence of God. Look at verses 12 through 17. Then, and again, after a period of time, indefinite period of time, a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple of months, the brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. They're living in and around Hebron right now, as the story starts, but they're going to go north to Shechem and end up in Dothan. There was, there's a Dothan, Alabama, near, Alabama, near Birmingham, where I lived, and we heard about Dothan a lot. But keep reading. Uh, brothers went to pasture the flock in Shechem, and Israel, that's Jacob's name, uh, said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Now, Shechem is where a horrific atrocity at the hands of these men, the ten older brothers, happened a few years before. And I won't get into the grisly details, but after a, an unfortunate uh, situation with their sister where she was assaulted, uh, the brothers kind of sneakily arranged for the men of Shechem to submit to a Jewish religious ritual, which involves cutting parts of the skin off. And in the after, in the post-operative uh, phase, when they were those men were unable to do much, these ten brothers slaughtered them and stole all their stuff. So uh, I think they're in Shechem because there's no, really nobody left to uh, give them any problems, although I think some of the local groups probably were not really happy with them. But they end up north of that in, in Dothan. And this is these are all cities you can dig up. They've dug them up archaeologically. They all were there and during this time frame, so no problem that way. But Joseph says to, uh, or Israel, Jacob says to his son Joseph, with his coat on, so he can't really do physical work. Hey, your brothers are in Shechem, you know, where that unfortunate thing happened a few years back. I'm going to send you to check on them. And he said to him, jo- Joseph, who again, is he's going to be pretty naive. Okay, sure, sounds like a good idea. I mean, to me, in those circumstances, I occasionally, without meaning to, accumulate enemies, especially this time of the semester. Uh, <laughs> you have a certain number of students that are very unhappy with their grades, so it's got to be my fault, and now we've got five weeks of mad dash to the final exam, and they've just got to, sometimes they develop a very a nasty attitude, and sometimes it's like pulling teeth. I wondered why God let me go to dental school before I went to seminary. It's because being a pastor, being a teacher, sometimes like pulling teeth. So, and I've actually did that in dental school, so a few times for unfortunate patients, all of whom survived, but it wasn't easy. Um, don't let me do it for you now. But anyway, he says, go, down, check, go up there and check on them. And Joseph, again, kind of naive, said, yeah, sounds like a good idea. I'll go. No problem. And so he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring word back to me. Just give me a progress report. Now, hey, Zach, why didn't he just text him? <laughs> you know, I would have done that. That's a lot easier, right? So he sent him from the Valley of Hebron, which is where they're hanging out, where they're living uh, in their tents right there. And he came to Shechem. That's where they said they were going to be. And they were there for a while, probably decided to move for various reasons. And a man found him, just a guy standing in his field. He was outstanding in his field, you know. And behold, uh, Joseph is wandering in the field around Shechem trying to find the brothers. Now, why is that mentioned here? I think in a big epic, which obviously is all, all the big ideas are being directed by the providence of God, we're being told that even the little 
nuisances, even the little things that are aggravating. He can't find his brothers and nobody's there to tell him where they are. And this guy just walks up and, oh, yeah, we saw those guys. They just went to Dothan. You know, it's not easy. If I'm right in the middle of God's will, everything's easy and fun and never have any problems, never have to ask for directions. You may still have to ask for directions, especially if your phone conks out. You know, you're going to be in trouble. And sometimes that phone will take you to the wrong location. This happened to me a couple of times, which is embarrassing. Uh, I was trying to find a cemetery once to do a funeral, and I ended up in this empty field. And according to Google Maps, that was the cemetery. And it turned out not to be the cemetery, so it's a problem. They can't start without me, you know. So, <laughs> but we got there. Uh, the deceased didn't move, so it's all, it's all good. Uh, yeah. So anyway... Comes to Shechem, he's looking around, there's no evidence of them. And a man, just a local, said, what are you looking for? And Joseph said, I'm looking for my brothers. And that group of ten guys, that big flock, uh, can you tell me where they are, please tell me. And the man said, oh yeah, I remember them. They moved from here, and I heard them say, let's go to Dothan, which is just due north of the ways. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So he didn't let that inconvenience stop him from doing what dad had asked him to do, but the idea that everything's going to be easy, no frustrations, no complications if you're in the middle of God's will, is just not true. It's not borne out by Scripture. Look at verse 18 and following. His brothers conspire to kill Joseph, but by the providence of God, they end up only, and I put only in quotes, selling him into Egyptian slavery, which was the same thing, only slowly, right, is what you'd think. But look at this. It's quite interesting. Look at verse 18. When they saw him from a distance, now how, how could they recognize him from a distance, Ken? What do you think? What do you think he's wearing? He's wearing his leather jacket, man. He doesn't want to get his hands dirty, you know. He's the chief. There's the Indians. He's just coming to supervise. He's, he's a consultant, right? When they saw him from a distance, wearing that coat, so he stood out. Uh, but before he came close to them, so they see him from, they got time to talk, uh, privately. They plotted against him to put him to death. We're gonna, we're gonna make sure these dreams aren't gonna happen. We're never bound down to this kid. And they said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Now then, come let us kill him. Isn't this, isn't this beautiful? Isn't this wonderful? Would you be making this up about the founders of Judaism if it wasn't true? There's no reason to make stuff like this up. This is what happened. This is how depraved we are, man. Uh, we're not different than they are. Uh, Jesus says, I haven't committed murder. But I probably have committed some character assassination, not recently, uh, that I can remember. Uh, and if you just refuse to forgive, you become implacable. You know, some people just can't get over uh, things like personality. I mean, I don't expect everybody to be like me. In fact, I think I'm very different, and I don't want anybody else to be like me, except maybe Jamie a little bit. But that's just me. And he is kind of like me in some ways. Uh, but yeah, I've been find my verse. Where am I? Uh, Some from a distance, plot against him. They say, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. Let's throw him in one of the pits and we'll say a wild beast about him. Then let us see what becomes of his dreams. It's all about the dreams, Colleen. Those dreams are really under these guys' skin and we are not going to let that happen. We're going to make it impossible for those dreams to happen. Now, you know, Hitler had a plan and it involved some horrific aspects. He wanted to control the world. Did that happen? Not going to happen, you know? Uh, man proposes, God disposes. This is the sovereignty of God being worked out through all these choices, little, big, seemingly significant, seemingly insignificant, right, wrong. It's all going to be impossible because of their envy and their resentment. They can't forgive this guy. They hate him so much they want to kill him. But Reuben, who happens to be the oldest of the sons, and by you know, force of his personality in that position tends to be the leader, heard this, 
and rescued them out of his, out of their hands and said, let's not take his life. Reuben further said, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit. It's a cistern that would sometimes of the year, uh, early in the year, have some water in it for storage, but it's, the water is all gone. So we're in the middle of the year at least. Uh, that's in the wilderness. But do not lay hands on him. Don't kill him. Uh, and the reason Reuben said that was why? He wanted to rescue Joseph out of their hands to restore him to the father. Now, Reuben kind of had relations with, with Bilhah, who was one of his, his, not his physical mother, but, uh, one of his dad's four wives, and dad didn't like that. And in fact, it was very terrible. And so he's looking for a way to kind of make points. So let's not kill him. We'll throw him in a pit and decide what to do with him. And as soon as they do that and the guys get distracted with the flock, Reuben's going to pull him out, take him home and say, hey, daddy, I saved your favorite son. That's the plan. He needs to make points with his dad, so he's going to do that. So don't kill him. Throw him in a pit. And he's saying that so he can make points with dad. Verse 23. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers. What's the first thing they did? Rip his coat off. That coat... It's just like a, a, you know, a stick in the eye. They don't like that coat because it reminds uh, them of his favorite position. The very colored tunic, the coat of many colors that was on him. And they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. So normally you're not going to drown. But he might have you know, broken an ankle on the way down. And it doesn't say that, but something like this. Look at the next verse, which always blows my mind. Verse 25. So they're going to kill him. Get talked of, out of just physically killing him, killing him, but they're going to throw him in the pit and let him die in some way, just from starvation or whatever. That's kind of the plan, although Reuben's going to try to save him. And what's the next thing they do? They sit down to eat a meal. That's called being cold-blooded. To murder in cold blood means it didn't even raise your, your blood pressure to kill somebody. It's no big deal. It's just like nothing. They're happy to almost kill their brother, and let's, and I'm hungry, let's eat something. Um, for me, you know, for a long time, I would never eat at fellowship dinners because I was, I feel like I teach better, I do a better job, I focus better if I, I'm a little bit hungry, never eat breakfast on Sundays. I used to never eat uh, on Wednesday nights, and eventually my wife convinced me I needed to fellowship with some, some of the people in the church some of the time, so they can remember my name and stuff. So I said, okay, I'll do that. But they sat down for a meal, just shows how cold-blooded, how hardened they are, like it's no big deal to kill their brother. And as they raise their eyes and kind of thinking, okay, I wonder how long it'll take him to die down in that hole. Behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead. Gilead is this plain just east of the Jordan River, but north of the Dead Sea. And it's, it just so happens, it's a good thing. It sure is lucky, and I don't believe in luck, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Uh, the main uh, trade route at this stage in history, and we, we dug it up, it goes from Damascus Cross the river here to Dothan and then to Egypt, okay? If they'd been in Shechem, they would have missed this caravan. So God knew they needed a caravan to get Joseph to Egypt. So that's one reason they moved, whether they understood it or not. So anyway, they see these Ishmaelites coming from Gilead on this uh, roadway to Egypt with their camels bearing aromatic gum. What kind of, cause you, it's not juicy fruit, right? It's a different kind. And balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. So they're trading back and forth. Judah, okay, this is not Reuben, this is Judah, the fourth son, the son through whom the Messiah would come eventually, his tribe, said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood or just let him die in that pit? Come, let's sell him as a slave to the Ishmaelites 
and not lay our hands on him, not, not kill him. He's our brother. He's our flesh. So that would make it easier. And you know what? There's a 95% chance when they sell him into slavery, he's going to a salt mine next week, and he's going to die in a few months uh, under heavy labor. So this is essentially a death warrant, as far as they can tell. Plus, they're going to make money out of it, right? Um, and his, his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up, uh, lifted Joseph out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, uh, and they brought... They, they, the traders brought Joseph in Egypt. Now you see references to Ishmaelites and the Midianites, and that's on purpose because, long story short, uh, Ishmaelites technically are descendants of Abraham through Ishmael, mother was Hagar, as opposed to uh, Abraham, Sarah, and uh, uh, Isaac and Jacob, and that, that blessed line. But by this point in history, the term Ishmaelite became a general term for desert nomads, regardless of their genealogy. And Midianites would be a specific term within that category. In other words, I could say, uh, Michelle Franks is an Oklahoman. Is that correct? So the Oklahoman was in church today with other Oklahomans. Uh, she's also a Duncanite. Okay? Oklahoma is a big category. Duncanite is a more specific category. Mammal is a big category. Uh, dog is a smaller one. Lenny is a smaller one. Let me tell you my problem this week. My wife and my... You saw my wife Wednesday night. She's still alive and well. She's been out of town a lot with her sister. Anyway, on Friday, Debbie, my wife, my first wife, and uh, she didn't like that joke, and uh, Karen, her last sister, Went to Tulsa to babysit for Jamie for a week and, and his wife. They're out of town. Okay. Now, guess what they left me with? They left me with a mammal, a dog, and his name is Lenny. I call him Leonard because we're not really on good terms right now. But his, his name is Lenny. And uh, Lenny doesn't like other dogs. And we have other dogs. And he has antenna to tell him whether other dogs are doing something. So he barks a lot. But... Uh, I've got the power of the food, okay? And so I heard him telling his other dogs, hey, Brad's not going to feed me this week. Uh, no, he, uh, he kind of, that's what it sounded like he was saying, but I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, put him on a, a strict, uh, choices and consequences. Uh, he may lose a couple of pounds, but we'll see what happens. But anyway, <laughs> no, I'm going to give him, I'm going to give him plenty of food. I want, want him to be happy. Okay. So, boom. So we've got him sold to slavery. Egyptian slavery by his brothers. Now look at verse 29 through 35. So what do they got to do when they go back home? Joseph's no longer with them. What are they, they going to have to do when they get back home, the brothers? Explain to dad what happened. Because he's expecting Joseph to come back with a report, not the guys to come back a month later with, without Joseph. So we got, we got, you know, some, uh, I guess Ricky Ricardo, Andrew would say, they got some explaining to do, right? Now Reuben, uh, and, and you know, some commentators will say, well, that's a mistake in the text. No. You know what? You got guys sitting down for the meal and, and, and conspiring, but you got a couple other people, including Rubin actually watching the flock, you know, kind of, uh, uh, playing a zone defense for an hour or two while they're eating. So Rubin wasn't involved in those negotiations to sell him and he was not aware of it, but he comes back to the area and he looks in the pit to make sure Joseph's still alive because he wants to pull him out and take him to dad immediately. And behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he tore his garments, that is Reuben. He's all upset. And he returned to his brothers and said, 
Joseph's not in there. He calls him the boy. You're not supposed to say anymore. The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? God's going to hold me personally responsible. So they took Joseph's tunic. They need, they need to be able to explain this away, which they've got, the multicolored coat there. Slaughtered a male goat, dipped the tunic in the blood, and they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, Hey, Dad, uh, we found this. As if they're not sure it's Joseph. Hey, we found this, this, you know, this mink stole, you know, for men, you know, this fantastic multicolored thing that tells him, tells us he's the boss and we's just the helpers. Uh, please examine it and see whether it's your son's. They won't even say his name. Not see if it's Joe's coat, but see if it's your son, you know, the son you like so much. Is that his? And Jacob looks at it, heartbroken. And it said, he says, it is, it is Joseph's coat, no doubt about it, and no doubt a wild animals devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn into pieces. No, it's worse than that. His brother sold him into slavery, assuming he's going to die a horrible death there in Egypt. So Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his loins, he's going into deep mourning, and mourned for his son many days. Then all his sons and his daughters, got twelve sons and one daughter, Dinah, right? Interesting. Uh, although plural. So what's that? Daughters-in-law, right? Got Dinah plus the daughters-in-law. Because he's got a bunch of daughters-in-law. He was to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Uh, you know, Sheol is a Hebrew term for the abode of the dead. You remember Jesus teaches a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. They both die. And Lazarus, who had nothing physically but was a believer in paradise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the rich man's down here, and there's a great gulf fixed. Sheol is the term for that compartment, for that area, the place of the dead. Now, since the ascension of Christ, all believers, uh, church-age believers, when we die, they bury our body or gets cremated or gets blown up or gets eaten by sharks, whatever happens to it. Uh, God knows where those atoms are. He's going to use those later. But our souls, our consciousness goes to heaven, not to paradise, because these folks are saved on credit. Until that payment is made and accepted legally in heaven, believers in the Old Testament who believed the promises about the Savior were regenerate, but they went to paradise, not to heaven. Now, on the cross, Jesus says to the terrorist who believes, today, and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom? And what does Jesus say? Today you'll be with me where? Yeah. yeah, which is the upper compartment. So when he says, I'll go down to Sheol, he knows he's going to paradise. He's a believer. It's hard to tell based on some of his choices. But he's saying, in effect, um, this is probably going to kill me, and I'm never going to get over it until I see him again. And listen, there are some scars that we can accumulate, physical and psychological in this world that cannot be healed this side of heaven, folks. Uh, telling people, I know how you feel, I'm going to pray for you, is not going to fix it. You know, It's deeper than that. And I think you diminish people's griefs, grief when, uh, when that happens. By the way, talking about going to Sheol, we won't take the time, but in Genesis 35, 16 through 19, where we get the uh, description of Rachel, Joseph's mother, and uh, the fourth wife of Jacob, giving birth to the last boy, Benjamin, Joseph's little brother. It says uh, that she died in childbirth, and it describes her death as when her soul was leaving her body. See, death is not extinction, it's separation. 
Physical death is not extinction of your consciousness. It's the separation of your consciousness, your soul, if you're a believer, to where Jesus is, right? So don't read extinction into death. It's always separation. And that passage in Genesis 35 says, uh, as her soul, as her nephesh was leaving the body. Look at verse 36. Joseph in Egypt, by the providence of God, doesn't end up in a salt mine, being forced to work himself to death over the next few weeks or months. He finds himself in a pretty cushy situation, okay? Joseph in Egypt, by the providence of God, finds himself a servant, a household servant. He's not in the fields, he's not in the mines, in the household of Potiphar, who is a powerful Egyptian official with a lot of clout. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt as a slave to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. So... We're going to go from the promised land, which is this strip and more right there, and Hebron, Shechem, and Dothan, and Joseph ends up here in Egypt. And uh, that's important because uh, Abraham was told that uh, his descendants would be out of the land for 400 years, and that's going to happen in connection with this story, and we'll pick it up next time. But just notice what happens here as we close. We've got the brothers envying and hating Joseph. That's never a good thing. The brothers try to eliminate Joseph specifically. They're trying to make it impossible for his dreams to be fulfilled. And when you're doing that, you're fighting God, right? And yet God remains at work in and through Joseph. And at some levels, it doesn't look like it, but it just is. And I think Joseph totally buys into that. In fact, go to chapter 39. We're going to do fast forward to what we're going to see. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. We just read that. Uh, and Potiphar, uh, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, uh, bought him. He was on sale on the slave market uh, from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. But the Lord, Yahweh, the God of his salvation, was with Joseph even in Egypt. didn't have to be in Canaan for God to be with him. So he became a successful person, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw the Lord was with him, with Joseph, and the Lord caused all that he did to prosper, so Joseph found favor in his sight, became his personal servant, and Potiphar put him over the whole Ponderosa there kind of thing. So um, God is at work, and Joseph never wavers in his faith. A couple of practical principles here. Obedient servants like Joseph or James or Carol or Debbie or Ron may suffer at the hands of those who are disobedient, and they may even outrank you in a business situation or a team or in a family or have seniority over you. But what do we do? Hate them and lock up? No. Keep on working hard, righteously. When we face that kind of attack, trust God to defend you. Don't hate. Don't hold grudges. We're going to see that those brothers change drastically in their character over the next 13 years. But we're going to see that Joseph, who's very naive, hey, go check on your brother. Sure, Dad, I've got nothing else to do. I'd love to go check on my brother. No problem there. That's how naive he is. After Joseph, who now looks like an Egyptian, when he rendezvous with his brothers as they come in to avoid the famine, and they don't recognize him for a while, he makes them jump through some hoops, not because he holds a grudge, but he's trying to test to see whether they've changed. They tried to kill me. Are they going to try to kill my younger brother now if they're under pressure? So he's going to test them not uh, to mete out the tribulation, but just to test their character. And they actually pass the character test at that point. So God changes people. God's in the people changing business. 
Those who try to ruin the lives of obedient servants may find it necessary, quote-unquote, to deceive third parties, in this case their dad, about what really happened. They, he can't understand or doesn't want, they don't want him to know their agenda. And I would just say, don't believe everything an aggrieved person tells you about somebody they hate, about their old boss, if they get fired. People who get fired sometimes have real reasons. They're real reasons. It's not just the boss is an unbeliever and he didn't like me because I'm a Christian. He may have not liked you because you did a three-hour Bible study that day when you were supposed to crank out these final reports and you didn't get the final reports done. And he's not persecuting because you read the Bible. He persecuted you because or fired you because you were slacking off on company time, right? Those kind of things happen. So I would say when somebody's really agitated about somebody else, when somebody wants to tell me about some other person, I divide it by a factor of about ten, and try to find out what's going on and try to get them to talk to each other. That's my strategy for that. But let me end this way. Beware the dangers of envy, resentment, and hate. It's ugly. It's ungodly. But at this point in the story, this is where the brothers are at. Now, they're going to radically change in 13 years. But it leads you to some places you don't want to go. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, hey, forgive other people. You know, don't make a big deal about it. Uh, in fact, if you don't forgive, I'm not going to listen to your prayers, you know. Uh, husbands are told, live with your wives in an understanding way, as uh, with a weaker vessel, a more exquisite vessel, a being vase is much more exquisite than a tin can, uh, and grant them honor as a, as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so your prayers won't be hindered. You know, you put, you mistreat your wife, God's not going to be excited about answering your prayer list all day long. So, beware the dangers of envy and resentment. It can take you places that are very, very ugly, and certainly ungodly. Uh, but don't despair when you are envied and resented. Like Jesus says in Matthew, rejoice when you're persecuted for righteousness. Somebody noticed you're different, right? But as Christians, let's not be doing Bible study when we're being paid to crank out widgets. Crank out your widgets and do the Bible study before and after work kind of thing, right? So let's close in prayer. We'll pick up the story right there next time. Father, we do believe that you providentially control everything that happens. Everything that happens is not good. There's some horrible things that happen to us and around us and some horrible things we've probably done. But because you are sovereign and because you've got a plan and you know how all the, you know how all the pieces fit together, you tell us that all things to work together for good. Or as Joseph will say at the end of this story, when he's reconciled with the brothers, he said, in effect, what you did to me when you threw me in that pit, wanted to kill me or sell me into slavery and have me die, you intended that for evil, but God intended it for good. And help that uh, that truth to move from our heads to our hearts so we can kind of relax a little bit, be in the eye of the hurricane more when the winds are swirling around us because all those winds that you allow us to, to course through are purposeful. They've, they've got their place in your program for us and help us to receive that. And I pray that as we do this study of Joseph, we can be uh, not just impressed by Joseph's character, but realize that all these things are happening ultimately as part of a long chain of events to get uh, Jesus in his first coming here uh, in history for us and for the world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.